You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from the Vandalia Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. We are a community that believes in the value of all people. You can find out more about us at www.vandalia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Vandalia Church. Okay, so this is the, the first Sunday of Advent. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on some specific themes leading up to to Christmas. Let me start by reading a couple of other passages, and then we're going to focus on Mark 13. So Romans 13, 11 and following says, Besides this, you know what time it is. How it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. One of the themes that we'll be talking about is expectation, hope, waiting. But before we, I want to back away from that for a minute and talk about one of my favorite movies. One of, the, one of the films that I will watch over and over and over again. If it's playing on TV and I find it, I will watch it. I will stop, I will sit, and I will watch whatever's left of it. And it's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's an epic movie. It spans Indiana's life. It spans the globe. It touches on some globally defining events of the 20th century. The film is about a race to capture the holy grail of treasures. The holy grail. I thought that would elicit a bigger laugh than it did. The holy grail is a cup, the cup of Christ. And it's reputed in the movie to bring immortality to the one who drinks from it. It's being pursued by the Nazis and by Indiana and his dad. They're racing to capture it before the Nazis can use it, can capture it, and achieve global domination. By the end of the film, they all find themselves in an ancient stone temple carved into the side of a canyon in the desert. By the way, I'm going to ruin the ending for you if you haven't seen it before, but it's like 20 years old, so blame yourself. Um, So they find themselves in this ancient temple, and Indiana has to solve a series of puzzles, survive several deadly traps to try to retrieve the grail. And once he solves the puzzles and survives the traps, he makes it into a small cave, which houses hundreds of cups, some extravagant and luxurious, some plain and unremarkable. And Indiana has to decide which is the real Holy Grail. 
in a final life-threatening choice. A wrong choice at this point, drinking from the wrong cup, will cost him his life. The villain learns this the hard way when he chooses the wrong cup. And his face turns into what looks like ketchup and ranch dressing. (laughs) Now, what's surprising is that this is not really the climactic moment in the plot. This scene gets the most attention. However, the real victory is not won yet, though the viewer of the film doesn't know this yet. The real conflict has not yet been resolved. Indiana is able to choose wisely. He chooses a plain cup, an everyday cup, the cup of a carpenter, he says. A cup that reflects the character of the one to whom it originally belonged. He drinks from it and survives. He takes it and uses it to heal his father's wound. But although they've been instructed by this knight here, who's been guarding the cup all this time, they've been instructed not to take the cup beyond the boundaries of the temple. One of Indiana's compatriots can't help herself. She begins to leave with the grail. And as she crosses the line, the earth starts to tremble. The ground splits open, and people begin to fall. And the grail is dropped into the pit. And so Indiana's friend dives in after it. She's desperate not to lose it. Indiana dives in after her, trying to keep her from falling. And he fails at that. But although his friend is lost, the grail is still resting on a small shelf in the side of this chasm. He's hanging on with one hand now. He's reaching as far as he can to retrieve this cup, but he can't quite reach it. He's straining, he's desperate, and his grip on the cliff is slipping. His father grabs his hand and tries to pull him up, but Indiana can't give up on regaining this holy grail. This is the most important moment in the film. This is the defining moment. All through the story, there's been a lingering question. Why are he and his father in pursuit of this thing? By reaching for the cup at this point, he's making it harder and harder for his dad to pull him up out of the chasm. He's slipping away just as his friend had a moment ago. His father tells him to let it go, to climb up. And it's at this final moment that Indiana is forced to answer a fundamental question about himself. The real question here is, where does his hope lie? Does he actually believe, does he actually value, does he actually hope in a way that reflects the choice of that cup from among the others? Our texts for today have to do with just these sorts of questions. Like I said, today's the first day of the Advent season this year. Advent means arrival, coming, appearance. And it's an old part of the Christian heritage, dating back at least 16 or 1700 years. But the real roots of this practice, this season, go back to Scripture. One of the threads that weaves its way through 
the Old Testament and which serves as the background for the Gospels is this theme of expectation and hope, preparing for the coming of God's anointed one, a Savior who would bring God's own redemption to the world. We also see people in the Gospels explicitly celebrating the birth, the arrival of Christ. A great multitude of angels thunders from the heavens, the praise of God for the arrival of God's peace in the person of Christ. Mary and Simeon and Anna take time specifically to pause and publicly sing about, praise God, celebrating this birth, this arrival. And so it was natural for the Christian community to allow this sort of celebration to be integrated, built into their annual life together. So the four Sundays prior to Christmas serve as this season of Advent, followed by the 12 days of Christmas. This is one way that we show our unity, our solidarity, our common hope with others around the world and with those who've come before us, who have passed this hope on to us. So we begin by reading some passages about hope, about expectation, about staying awake and keeping watch. Mark 13. It says, But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on, on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Many have, have taken passages like this and tried to sort of map them out over modern history, trying to predict the end times. But this goes precisely against the grain and the context of this passage. The context of this passage is Jesus speaking to his disciples about coming suffering, something he's been warning them about through the book. Here he's telling them not about some 21st century predictions, but about sufferings that they would face, loss and destructions, 
that the Jews would be familiar with in the first century. Things like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the scattering of the Jews that followed. The larger point of the passage is that Jesus' followers should expect to face suffering and loss. And the reason they should expect to face suffering and loss is because the ways of this kingdom are radically contrary to the powers and structures around them. And so he tells them to wait. He tells them to, to stay awake, to keep watch. What does this mean? The same sort of story, the same sort of parable shows up in several places in the Gospels. Matthew 24, I think, is another one. People preparing for a wedding are told to be vigilant. People are told to be ready, be prepared. Servants waiting for their master to return are told to stay awake. The homeowner is called out for failing to keep watch in case the robber shows up in the middle of the night. Now, he's not literally telling them not to sleep, and he's also not telling them simply to watch the seconds pass on their clocks when he tells them to wait. What he's saying, what the author wants his readers to hear, I think, when they hear these passages, is that the followers of Christ are called to a sort of active awareness, a preparedness, an expectation that's, that's fitting with the one whose arrival we're hoping for. Since Christ is the one whose arrival we anticipate and celebrate, we live our lives, we value, we act, we love, we hope in ways that reflect the fact that Christ is our Lord. But there's another side to this. To place our hope in this one, to say yes to this one, is also to say no to others. One great example of this Um, just this last week as I was wrapping up my Christian history course for my gen ed students, we were covering some some major defining events of the 20th century. And one of the things that stands out from uh, the Christian heritage in the 20th century is um, what happened in in Germany, how, how Christians responded to what was happening in Germany in the 1930s as the Nazi party was rising in power. And they were trying to basically take over the churches, um, to use the Christian churches as means for their own support, their own ends, um, installing their own supporters uh, in leadership positions in these churches. And in response, some Christians uh, formed a group called the Confessing Church. I think I've mentioned them before. Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were some of the the people involved. And they wrote what came to be called the Barman Declaration, opposing the Nazi party, opposing their values, and opposing the Nazi attempt to take over the the church. And in one section, this is section three, I believe, they say this. They're articulating their, their faith, and they're articulating their response to this crisis, and they're articulating their opposition And so they say this, summarizing their stance. They they say, The Christian church is the community of brethren in which, in word and sacrament, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ acts in the present as Lord. With both its faith and its obedience, with both its message and its order, 
It has to testify in the midst of the sinful world as the church of pardoned sinners that it belongs to him alone and lives and may live by his comfort and under, under his direction alone in expectation of his appearing. We reject the false doctrine that the church could have permission to hand over the form of its message and of its order to whatever it itself might wish or to the vicissitudes of the prevailing ideological and political convictions of the day. These are bold words in opposition to the Nazi, to the rising Nazi party. This is one example of staying awake, of keeping watch, of waiting. To stay awake for and to stay watchful for this Lord is to recognize that what we're waiting for hasn't fully arrived yet. It's to declare that our hope has not been and cannot be fulfilled by anyone or anything else. In other words, this hope, this anticipation is also a sort of antagonism, an opposition to the way things are, to the powers that be, to all the other voices claiming to provide us with redemption and wholeness, with final hope. It's also to look for ways following the example of the fig tree, to look for the ways that this final day, this wholeness, this final peace is making its mark in the world, in the present, where justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, where swords are being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, to look for ways that this transformative and enduring and life-giving peace is moving in the world around us and to join it. To say in the face of fear and despair that we will not give in, that the light is coming and has already come. A light from God that shatters darkness, that doesn't create but rather destroys shadows. A light that penetrates down to our marrow, reshaping the swords and spears within us, transforming our hearts and hands and voices into instruments of life, transforming us into enemy lovers and justice seekers, a light that overturns even death itself, a light that's uniquely worthy of our deepest faith and trust and celebration and expectation. Let's pray together. God, we praise you. You are the Holy One. We wait in eager expectation for your coming. We rejoice that out of your love you have united with us in the person of Jesus Christ. We rejoice for the ways that uh, you are at work in this world bringing hope and light and love in darkness. Pray that you would bind us together, fill us with your spirit, and empower us to live out this hope in the world around us. Pray all things through Christ our Lord. Amen.